Yes. at Biola University. He has a PhD in Ancient Near Eastern Studies from Annenberg Research Institute in Philadelphia, and another PhD in Physics from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. And he is going to speak to us on the question of, is there science in the Bible? So please welcome Dr. Bloom. We're, we're actually on time, and we're actually, uh, there's still people here at 11 o'clock, so that's, that's kind of nice to see. Um, is this actually running, the PowerPoint, or does it just advance? If I click, what happens is the question. Let me, I think I need to, well, hard to say. Um, I can't tell at this point. We'll see. There might be some surprises later, so. Um, just to give a little trailer at the beginning of any talk here, um, one of the things that I do at Biola is, um, let's see, direct the master's program that we have in science and religion where we work at issues, again, trying to integrate Christianity and science. Uh, there's the historical aspects to it. Um, how did we get to where we are today? There's the philosophical issues, exactly what is science and its goals. Christianity and its goals, uh, theological issues as well, and then um, various hot topics that are in the contemporary scene that we look at as well in the program. So um, a lot of fun, little brief advertisement for that, I guess I would say. Um, the question here is, uh, is there science in the Bible is what we're looking at. And um, to clarify this question, I just want to say, does the science does the Bible contain any information about the natural world, what today we would call science, that agrees with our modern understandings, but is distinct from the limited views about the natural world, which are founded in neighboring ancient cultures? For well over a century, liberal theologians have answered no to this question and produced critical works such as Babylon Bible to attempt to prove that the Israelites knew nothing more and probably a whole lot less about the world than their neighbors did. Such pessimistic views are typical of the liberal theologians' or skeptical approach to biblical studies and traditional theology, which merely sees the Hebrew and Christian religions as products of their primitive, superstitious times. However, this no answer has recently been picked up by a number of evangelical scholars, most notably by John Walton in his Lost World of Genesis 1. And in order to justify rejecting an exegetical practice of scientific concordism, harmonizing the Bible with modern science, Walton asserts that the Israelites received no revelation to update or modify their ancient scientific understanding of the cosmos. A little bit later, he says, through the entire Bible, there's not a single instance in which God revealed to Israel a science beyond their own culture. No passage offers a scientific perspective that is not common to the old world, and he means their ancient Near Eastern science of antiquity. Such bold, sweeping generalizations like this, which brush aside the work of conservative scholars, are intimidating when they come from someone with the stature of Walton. However, his assertions are testable, and my goal in this paper is to evaluate this claim. Are there really, is there really no science in the Bible beyond what was common to the ancient world. First point on this is, is to deal with the stability of the physical laws. In ancient Near Eastern cosmology, the operations of the world were under the control of the gods. And 
their regularity could not be assumed. In Mesopotamia, the god who held the tablet of destinies controlled the universe and the affairs of mankind. Generally, this was the highest ranking god in the pantheon, but if the tablet was stolen, as happened in the Anzu epic, the result was cosmic chaos. Cosmic uncertainty is also evident in the Babylonian Akitu, or New Year's festival, which was conducted annually to reestablish the kingship by divine authority and to secure the life and destiny of the people for the coming year. The instability of nature is an inherent weakness of polytheism because personality conflicts between the gods lead to bickering and working around of decrees. This unpredictable rule by committee is painfully well attested in ancient Near Eastern literature. In contrast, the workings of the world are seen as fixed and unchanging in the Bible. This is implied in the fourth day of creation, where the sun, moon, and stars are established for marking days, seasons, and years. And it is explicitly affirmed a few chapters later in the Noahic Covenant, where God says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. God later emphasizes the fixity of these laws in Jeremiah, where he says, Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant. So thus, at least to me, it appears that Walton is too hasty in asserting that through the entire Bible there's not a single instance in which God revealed to Israel a science beyond their own culture. No passage offers a scientific perspective that was not common to the old world science of antiquity. That the patterns of nature were unchangeable and fixed was not a common assumption in the ancient Near East. Moreover, these biblical proclamations about the regularities of nature were some of the insights which motivated Galileo, Kepler, Newton, and others to search for them and to develop modern science. If Walton is correct, then Christians have no scriptural basis to presume that the natural world operates according to fixed laws, because that would be reading something into the Bible that was not common in the ancient Near Eastern mind. I'm not sure this is something that most conservative theologians and Christians in science would want to go along with. Second example deals with animal breeding. An excellent example of ancient scientific thinking in the Bible, I think, does show up in the conflict between Jacob and Laban. After Jacob agrees to tend his father-in-law's herds in exchange for the speckled, spotted, and black sheep, or goats among them, Jacob intentionally tries to get Laban's flocks to breed discolored offspring. Quoting the Genesis here, Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white stripes in them exposing the white which was in the rods. He set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, and they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And by only using the rods with the stronger animals, Jacob was able to increase both the size and strength of his own discolored flocks to Laban's detriment. Although this practice is not attested explicitly in other ancient literature from this period, and it is in later, especially in Greek periods and beyond, we have this recorded, Jacob is clearly drawing from the best science of his day, sympathetic magic or what doctors sometimes call maternal impression, 
to manipulate breeding outcomes. But to think that what animals see when they mate could influence the color of their offspring clearly bears no resemblance to modern genetics. Was this an example of a Bible passage where the science described is common to that of other ancient Near Eastern cultures of the time? It certainly appears to be. However, if we keep reading in the text instead of leaving this passage in isolation, we find that God corrects Jacob's folk science. Jacob later tells Rachel and Leah, and it came about at the time when the flock were mating, that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. So the vision that God shows Jacob makes sense genetically. Homozygotic mottled males breeding with heterozygotic white females, as about two-thirds of Laban's herd would be since Jacob had removed all the mottled animals earlier, will yield a large fraction of mottled offspring. So Jacob's dream appears to refute Walton's claim that the Israelites received no revelation to update or modify their scientific understanding of the cosmos. God shows Jacob in a dream, which I would call revelation, that his folk science is incorrect. The breeding outcomes depend on the characteristics of the animals themselves, and of course that God is in control. So thus it appears, my hypothesis is, that God will correct the ancient scientific understanding of biblical characters when an incorrect understanding of nature either obscures his actions or would mislead his people. Third point, then, is that nature is impersonal. This hypothesis that God corrects the scientific understanding of biblical characters when it obscures his actions or misleads his people is seen in another passage here from Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations, and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them, for the customs of the peoples are delusion. Babylonian astronomical omens date back to at least the old Babylonian period, and many are preserved in the Enuma Anu Enlil series of about 70 tablets. Since non-Israelites viewed the objects in the heavens as gods, it's only logical that eclipses, the varying shape of the moon, comets, meteors, and planetary positions would give clues to the god's disposition and man's fate. The god of the Bible dispenses with the signs of the day with one sentence, ignore it. The objects in the sky are not beings to be feared. Such a deep personification of nature is not found in any surrounding cultures. Moreover, it's even evident in Genesis 1, where the sun and moon are described, but not named, because their names are associated with Canaanite gods. This biblical view of physical objects as things, not persons, is also foundational to the rise of modern science. Fourth point regards divination. Interpreting signs in the sky are but one form of divination in the ancient Near East. Extipacy, the inspection of the internal organs of sacrificed animals. This is a liver, model liver shown here. Abnormal births, the flight patterns of birds in the sky, or the way smoke drifted up in a fire provided other means to discern the will of the gods. The importance of omens in guiding royal affairs 
is evident in that one-third of Ashurbanipal's massive royal library in Nineveh consisted of omen texts. This is just another picture I found. This is Asurnasipal too. He's wearing a necklace here with various divine um, amulets on it. Ezekiel 21, 21 to 22 mentions that Nebuchadnezzar used several methods of divination to decide between attacking Rabbah and Ammon or attacking Jerusalem during a Western campaign. In Israel, divination and omen reading was strictly forbidden and considered a capital offense. While the high priest could inquire of God using the Urim and Thummim, this very limited tool is a stark contrast to the extensive omen reading industry and control that divination exerted over the leaders of surrounding cultures. Like the reading of signs in the heavens, this science of the day, and this really was the technology, the highest technology of the ancient Near East was omen reading. This information about the natural world is absent from the Bible. The stark contrast is something that Walton's position would not anticipate. Fifthly, then, are medical laws. Walton's view that the Bible contains nothing beyond the science of surrounding cultures also sweeps under the rug the many effective and unique medically related laws in the Old Testament. Extensive passages dealing with quarantine, the isolation of people who are ill with contagious diseases, the proper handling and disposal of dead humans or animals, the distinction between clean and unclean, basic sanitation practices, washings, and sexual purity are recognized as unique insights compared to the medical and social practices found elsewhere in the ancient Near East. Sadly, their continuing value in modern times is generally learned the hard way, as in the famous case of Dr. Ignaz Simmelweis, who dramatically reduced the death rate in maternity wards in Vienna hospitals during the mid-1800s by requiring simply that his colleagues wash their hands after performing autopsies. Further, the Bible mentions nothing about wearing amulets comprised of semi-precious stones in order to ward off or heal various diseases, about using omens or incantations to drive the evil spirits out of a sick person, or about applying animal dung to heal wounds. All of these practices are common elsewhere in the ancient Near East. Of the many remedies used in Egyptian and Babylonian medical treatments, less than one-third of the identifiable ingredients have any known medical value. And these are generally salts or oils with a mild antibiotic or antiseptic effect and some pain relievers. Medical historians think that remedies were first chosen for magical reasons, the dung would repel a demon, for example, and that those which appeared helpful were then retained. What effectiveness these treatments actually may have had is generally attributed to the placebo effect. So in the space of this very limited paper, I've sought to remind us that there are some clear distinctions between the science of the day in the ancient Near East and what we find in the Bible. These differences provide a basis for valuing the Bible over other ancient literature and for supposing that it may contain something of spiritual value that is relevant to us today. When reacting against those who take a concordist approach to science in the Bible, I fear that Walton has fallen prey to a concordism of another fashion, seeking so much harmony between Israel and other ancient cultures that he misses the significant differences between them. And leaving aside the Bible itself here for a moment, 
ancient Near Eastern scholars note that we cannot homogenize ancient Near Eastern cosmologies. W.G. Lambert remarks that Enuma Elish, which is often held up as a norm of ancient Near Eastern, Christian, uh, ancient Near Eastern creation cosmologies, Lambert notes that this is not a norm of Babylonian or Sumerian cosmology. It's a sectarian and aberrant combination of mythological threads woven into an unparalleled compositum. Recent extensive works on ancient cosmologies demonstrate that there's a considerable variation in how ancient cultures imagined the universe. To assert that everyone in the ancient Near East held to a common belief in a three-tiered universe, for example, is a myth of oversimplification. Horowitz notes that the Mesopotamian cosmos is generally portrayed as consisting of, in fact, he says basically universally portrayed, as consisting of five or six superimposed levels separated by open space that are tethered together by cosmic bonds or lead ropes so that they do not drift apart. So if there really are differences between the Bible and other near, near ancient other ancient cultures regarding their understandings of the natural world, how extensive and how significant are they? How much concordism between the Bible and modern science is warranted? I think we do need to be cautious about this. We can hardly think that continental drift was in view when the Bible says that during the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. Or I don't think we need to overly concern ourselves about harmonizing modern science with the language of appearance that we see in many biblical descriptions of nature. Theologians assure us that the ancient Israelites did not believe that their God was literally a rock, nor that he had physical hands, feet, and eyes, although the Bible often describes God using these terms. If we know that the ancient Israelites did not think that God literally had physical eyes, we should not press every, every biblical description of nature as literal either, such as insisting that the ancient Israelites understood the pillars of the earth to be literal physical columns. So my hypothesis, again, is that God corrects the scientific understanding of biblical characters and informs the biblical authors when an incorrect understanding of nature would obscure his actions or mislead his paper. This modest proposal fits with the accuracy of medically related texts, the ban on divination, the deep personification and fixed behavior of natural objects, and it permits us to consider the possibility of a mild concordism with other scientific topics. Rabbi David Schatz has really recently written an extensive article, same title as my talk, by the way, on the issue of exegesis and scientific concordism. And he concludes that there's no valid in-principle argument against the practice. Any rationale that isolates the Bible from science also prevents scholars from using history, archaeology, philology, and linguistics to interpret the Bible. Schatz concludes that any particular concordist proposal must stand or fall on its fairness to the text and the quality of its fit. Thus, scientific concordism merits careful reflection rather than breezy dismissal. Unfortunately, there's no simple or automatic way to tease apart phenomenological descriptions of nature from physically accurate ones in any language or culture. For example, is the phrase, the four corners of the earth, simply the best idiom available for the original biblical writer and his audience? And thus we err if we conclude from this that the Bible is teaching that the world is square. 
Could not someone today read about north, south, east, and west in any modern geography text and conclude that we think the earth is square? Exegesis is also complicated by the fact that the meaning of words, idioms, and figures of speech in any language can change over time. That the word manufacture literally means made by hand, if you trace the roots for it. Thus, taking terms too literally may convey more than or even the opposite of what the author intended. Some would argue against a modern concordism by insisting that we can only use the meaning as understood by the author's original audience. But this approach is fraught with problems. For one, how well can we reconstruct the background knowledge and beliefs of the original audience? Seems to me that many ancient Near Eastern and biblical scholars assumed that the ancient Israelites were as familiar with the creation myths of other cultures as modern scholars themselves are. And while one late bronze fragment of the popular Gilgamesh epic was found at Megiddo, this is hardly proof that the average Israelite had ever heard of it, let alone of Enuma Elish or other creation myths. After all, there is a language difference between Akkadian and Canaanite or Hebrew, and from the quality of the Amarna letters, we know that even the professional scribes in Canaanite royal courts were not terribly literate in Akkadian. To argue that the creation myths from other cultures provide us with the background knowledge for the original Israelite audience, one must first assume that there was a wide translation and dissemination of literary works between cultures. But since public education did not exist in the ancient Near East, the chief vehicle for such dissemination is lacking. To make a contemporary comparison, how well does the average American know the works of Shakespeare, Goethe, or Dante? Certainly there are a few English and literature teachers who do, but we cannot assume that these few specialists are representative of the original audience for these works, nor of today's general population. So given the fragmentary evidence which survives, trying to reconstruct what the, Hebrew, what the original Hebrew audience would have understood might be nothing more than projecting a scholar's dreams into the distant past. Along similar lines, others protest the idea of concordism by appealing to the author's original intent. For the liberal theologian who believes that the Israelites are recording merely their own experiences and thoughts about God, concordism is thus impossible because these primitive people were locked in their own time. However, for an evangelical who believes that God actually spoke through his prophets, and there's no reason to require inerrancy here, simply that a higher power was able to communicate objectively with people, God is seen as the ultimate author, and we have no reason to expect that he cannot communicate in such a way so as to convey truths that are understandable both to the original audience and to future readers across other cultures. For modern example, a pastor's children's sermon contains truths that are readily understandable to both the five-year-olds and the nuclear physicists in the audience. So my sense is that in the Bible, we have God providing us with the universal narrative of his actions in history that transcends any specific culture, time, and science. These descriptions of nature are often so general that they can fit a variety of scientific views, ancient or modern. For example, the description that the sky is blue is true whether one thinks that the sky is blue because it's composed of lapis lazuli, because there's a layer of water above the atmosphere, because of really scattering of sunlight by air molecules, 
or whether one even knows or cares why the sky is blue. I largely concur with Holding's remark that, quote, the cosmology in Genesis has been kept so basic and equivocal that one must force certain meanings into the text and analyze what the human author must have been thinking, as well as pay no attention to the fact that God, not man, is the ultimate author of the text in order to find error. Physical phenomena are described without asserting their exact nature. Genesis 1 was perfectly designed to allow that interpretation which accorded with actual fact, for it says nothing more than God created the sky or its constituent elements while remaining completely silent about what these elements were. So it's not that we have a rubber Bible that can make the words mean whatever we want, but that the creative processes in Genesis are described in broad terms, like the sky is blue, and these terms alone are not definitive, are not definitive of a unique cosmology. Concordists are not trying to rationalize away erroneous statements like the earth rests on the back of turtles and it's turtles all the way down, but to find scientific parallels with the broad descriptive terms and sequence of events in the narrative. Well, so how do we apply modern concordism and biblical exegesis to the early chapters of Genesis? That's the topic for another paper. But that we can do it is the conclusion of this one. Thank you. Well, there are instances where God reveals himself in a vision. The 70 elders of Israel saw God there at Sinai and so on. So God can reveal himself in a vision, but what's his actual nature would be the question there. So that's how I would distinguish it too. how God chooses to reveal himself. If he does that in anthropomorphic terms, if he describes himself in anthropomorphic terms, that's one thing. Would Moses say that God literally had eyes and so on? I would, I would think not. Well, that's why I um, said that again to someone in the ancient Near East. Um, what they would understand knowledge about the natural world to be would include the omens and the omen reading. So, and yet that's something that's distinct from the Bible. So I was trying to use a broad definition of 
what we take science to be, because again, it's Walton that's making the claim, okay? There's no truths about the natural world that are not common to other cultures around. So I'm sort of working with his phrasing and definitions for that. Um, so I would say if you took it in the ancient Near Eastern sense, then you open up much broader understandings of what information we could glean from the natural world than we would today. And I guess my point is that if we look at the biblical sense of what God says are legitimate deductions from the natural world, what are not legitimate deductions from the natural world, um, they're more in accordance with our understandings of what's valid things to draw from the natural world. Okay, okay, yeah. very general questions. I have to give a very general answer. Um, I guess I would tend to see, you know, as I, as I said, that you know, what, what we see in the Bible is God giving a, and I'm you know, certainly progressive revelation and so on, it's reasonable, but God's giving us a, uh, again, here's where we came from, here's where we're going, here's the history of his people, how he chose them and so on. So I see again, a fair amount of Genesis and, and the Bible as, again, a historical narrative of how God's worked out things in history. So um, I know some would dismiss it as allegory or prehistory or something like that, but my sense would be is to take it as historical. Yeah, I'll refer to, it's a footnote in my paper on that. Don't read your footnotes normally in a paper, but um, 
Macmillan's book, None of These Diseases, is a nice documentation of that. There's also a book by Kenny Barfield, Why the Bible's Number One. Um, it's not as even a treatment as uh, Macmillan's, but uh, does look at the medical laws and really you know, how unique they are and medical historians you know, vouching for that fact on, on a number of levels. One of the things that was interesting with this is that historically, Jewish communities were protected from the bubonic plague in Europe uh, through their practice of the you know, quarantine and the washing and cleanliness rules. And uh, a lot of the Christian villages would then attack them. The Jews were blamed for bringing the Black Plague on Christians because the Jews were not getting it because they practiced these laws. No one knew how they worked or why they worked, but they did. So, um, so yeah, the, the medical aspects of um, the Israelite laws are really quite unique. And I would say would argue for God uh, giving some information that they would not have been able to glean from the surrounding cultures.